You are listening to a Sunday morning message from River Corner Church. River Corner Church is a growing church community of everyday people who gather to worship God, follow Jesus, and journey through life together. You are invited to gather with us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. If you have any questions about something you heard in this message, or if you want to learn more about our growing church community, visit us online at rivercornerchurch.com. Sometimes when someone speaks affirmation over us, it helps us to understand who we are better. It helps us to understand what we're good at. And last week, I shared that it would be powerful if we as followers of Jesus could actually learn to speak, not critiquing criticism over each other, but a sense of encouraging word, a prophetic word, a sense of identity over each other, words of affirmation by the power of the Holy Spirit. The boxer, Muhammad Ali, the guy that once said, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, also said, it is the reputation, the repetition of affirmations that leads to belief. And belief then becomes a deep conviction. That's when things begin to happen. In other words, he's saying the more that we hear something affirmed in us, the more we will believe it for ourselves. And eventually... The belief will become a deep conviction of who we are and what we believe. It's an understanding of who we are. And at that point, we can confidently live into our true identity. In hindsight, I was reflecting this week about how my own journey into pastoral ministry started when Jerry, a friend of mine, spoke to me and he said, Hey, I think you would be really good at doing this. He began to speak affirmations of value and skill and talent he saw in my life. And he didn't only just speak those things, he also made space or permission for me to practice and perform, to to, uh, get better at my gifts. Now, perhaps you are in a role or you've been in a role in the past where somebody opened the doors for you by saying, I think you would be good at that. When we have safe and mature people, that's important, safe and mature people who are led by the Holy Spirit and empowered by the Holy Spirit, uh, and they prophetically speak words of affirmation over us, we get a better understanding of who we are. Mr. Rogers, the children's television host, once said, who you are inside is what helps make you and everything you do in life. When we speak words of affirmation over each other uh, by the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit, really we begin to develop a better understanding of who we are. And when we do that, we have a healthier and a better understanding of what's inside us. And that makes every area of our life better. At the same time, though, too much of anything can be a bad thing. You and I can also prioritize the affirmation of others too much. The affirmations of others may hold more value than it should in our life. There was an American entrepreneur, James Rowan, who once said, Affirmation without discipline is the beginning of delusion. 
I think that's a really important line. I'm not sure what he was actually speaking about when he said this quote, but I see it as a danger of affirmation. I see a danger that if we are not careful, our need for affirmation without a check and a balance, without a plumb line or an anchor, will lead us into a land where I think we might think that we're greater than we actually are. It may lead us to be able to believe things about ourselves that aren't actually true, and rather we're living into what others have said about us rather than who God has created us to be. In fact, we live in a culture that really is driven by the need for affirmation. It has been said that we live in a selfie culture. We have social media networks that are built around sharing selfies, Selfies of our food, right? Videoing our dancing. I walk home all the time and I see kids in a neighborhood dancing in front of their phone, you know, for the next TikTok video. And we share these things so we feel connected, that we feel celebrated, that we feel liked, and that we feel accepted. And posts are that thing. They're, they're to give us likes, to give us hearts, to give us affirmation. Now, just because you may not have social media doesn't mean that you necessarily don't also struggle with needing the affirmation of others. In fact, the struggle for affirmation of others and the struggle with affirmation of others is long. Uh, It's older than any social media site. For generations, individuals have dressed at times for the attention or ultimately the affirmation of others. And this may be a way of dressing that invites invitation, or it may mean wearing a certain brand to fit in, or even it may be a way of dressing that you think will communicate a desired image of character or honor or respectability. For example, when I was growing up in the church, uh, and I did not grow up in an Anabaptist church, but as we grew up in our church, I remember hearing people talk about why they drove the car they drove that Sunday, or why they dressed the way they did that Sunday. And what I heard time and time again as a kid, as I was in the back cartooning what our pastor would look like in a comic book, um, I noticed people were always never talking about it as a way of worship or honor of God, but rather they wanted to make sure it portrayed their family in a certain way, that they would not be looked at in a funny way by others. In other words, we were dressing and driving cars for the affirmation of others, to communicate something about ourselves and our character in a way that we dressed. And, and those things, too, are unhealthy and unhelpful struggles with affirmation. Now, I think the word affirmation in today's time has lost its meaning for many. Sadly, the world for affirm- the word for affirmation has been hijacked in today's time in conversations that we use really around sexual orientation. And in today's time, we describe churches as open and affirming. And as a result, I think the word affirmation has become interchangeable with what it means to be liked and accepted. By definition, though, affirmation means the assertion that something exists or it is true or confirmation or ratification of the truth or validity of a prior judgment, decision, etc. In this way, affirmation is not about being liked or accepted. It's just merely about naming a truth that is evident to everyone, 
right? If you play piano well and I affirm you and say you play piano well, that's an affirmation. It doesn't mean I necessarily like the way you play piano. That's not, I did like the way we played piano this morning. But, <laughs> but what, that, what I'm saying is that affirmation is naming a truth. It doesn't actually mean that I have to like or accept something. If I see a skill in you, I'm only affirming what is evident to all. It doesn't mean I have to like or accept you. I do like and accept all of you as well, by the way. But it is possible to affirm something in someone without liking or accepting it. So affirmation, then, is just naming something that is true. It is helpful if we can name traits about each other that bring us out of unhealthy, destructive uh, ways of living and, and identities and to name them new identities in them. But out of balance, it can unfortunately also cause us to accept false identities in order of being liked or accepted. Our identity is never as challenged and as and as attacked as it is in moments that feel like we're in the middle of the wilderness or in the minute of the desert, a place where there's trial, tension, trouble, and temptations. I also think that often our struggles with affirmation come when we truly don't know who we are. Think about it. When we know who we are, it's easy for us to say, I don't really care what people think because this is who I am, and I'm just going to be that. As a result, though, because we often struggle with a lack of confidence in our identity, we live for the affirmations of others to avoid their critique or criticism. Now, the need for others' affirmation results from confusion about who we are, or, or uh, it erupts when we're willing to try out anything someone says about us. I'm tone deaf. If you tell me, Jeff, you sing really good, and then I try out to go on American Idol, it's not going to go so well for me, right? Uh, and so it's important for us not to just try on anything, any identity that somebody speaks into us. The past few weeks, we've been looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11 in our Lent series, which we've called Appetite, Affirmation, and Ambition. And we're going to look at those things again. I invite you to follow along with me in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. We looked at this temptation last week. This is the temptation of appetite or longing to shake the belief in God's provision. What I did not mention last week is this. In the church, this temptation looks like consumerism. I'm not getting fed. That church doesn't have the programs I need. I feel like uh, I'm hungering for something else. These are things we say about the church. This is the threat of appetite in the church. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered them, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And this is where we're going to focus our time today. This is the temptation of affirmation that longs to shake the belief in God's protection. In the church, when the church struggles with the need for affirmation, it looks like 
celebritism. It looks like fame. It looks like we need just to make ourselves uh, popular and launch our book series and so on. As we pointed out two weeks ago, Jesus wasn't led into this wilderness moment so that he could be tested in a way that Jesus was set up to fail, but rather he, led by the Holy Spirit, had to be brought into a place where he had to prove or test out that he could overcome the wilderness from his human side. Jesus does overcome the temptations of the wilderness because simply he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was in step with the Holy Spirit. We saw last week the wilderness is the place where Adam and Eve failed, where Abraham and Lot struggled. And it's where the Israelites in the wilderness struggled and they succumbed to the temptations of life and doubted God's provision, God's protection, and God's promises. This morning we're focusing on our time on this passage between 8 and 9, this temptation of affirmation. And in this passage, Jesus is taken most likely to another plane of existence. It says uh, that he's taken to the holy city. And the word for taking there can imply that he's physically actually taking there, or this is kind of another otherworldly experience. The passage says Jesus is not just taken to the temple, but to the highest point of the temple. Now, Some scholars like to debate things like, okay, was he really there on a temple? Like, could people have seen them? Or was this in a spirit? I tend to believe that this was a spiritual rather than physical location. Uh, But William Barclay remarks, we must not regard this experience of Jesus only as an outward experience. It was a struggle that went on in his own heart, his own mind and soul. And the proof is that there's no possible mountain from which all the kingdoms of the earth could have been seen. This is an inner struggle. His point is what we've been saying the past few weeks, the temptations Jesus is struggling with externally is meant to trigger doubt and confusion internally. And that's true of you and I. Often when we're struggling with something, the battle we're fighting or sharing with people isn't the real battle. The real battle is something deep and dark inside that we're often scared to name. Now, it doesn't matter if he was really on top of the temple physically or not, because it's still going to hold its point as we move on. The internal temptation is one merely trying to get God to doubt, and Jesus to doubt God's protection. Again, William Barclay remarks, it is through our innermost thoughts and desire that the tempter also comes to us, to you and me. His attack is launched in our own minds. It is true that the attack can feel so real that we feel like at times we almost see the devil. We find Jesus and the devil in this point standing on the highest point. And the word for the highest point can mean the wing, the the very tip or peak of the roof. Early readers, when they would have seen this and heard this, they would have realized that uh, the temple at that time was built on Mount Zion. And the top of Mount Zion kind of flattened out as a plateau. And it was there where these temple buildings, several temple buildings, stood. And on the corner of the temple was something called Solomon's Porch. And there was also something called the Royal Porch. One scholar remarks that it would have been a straight drop all right, from, from the top of that Solomon's porch point to the bottom of the Kindred Valley, about 450 feet. Solomon's porch was part of the temple that was first built by 
Solomon, right? But when Herod came into power, kind of readapted and rebuilt it to fit his needs. It was about 90 feet wide at that point, 30 feet long. He put a, a roof over it. And it was there that even Josephus, an early Jewish historian, says, the temple overlooks a deep valley. Now, later on, it would be destroyed in about 70 A.D. by Romans. But at the time, it was a a remarkable, beautiful temple of stone and beauty. And there, the devil again tempts Jesus with the scripture. Note, if you take anything away, take this away. This shows us it does not matter what scripture you know or what scripture you can show, what you quote. The reality is that we can misuse scripture. It can be weaponized and hijacked if we're not careful. The difference is that Jesus speaks scripture back by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what gives scripture its power and authority. Now, the devil is quoting some insights, some prophetic insights from Malachi 3 and Psalm 91. And he weaponizes them to try to get Jesus to struggle, to prove himself. These are scriptural promises about how God will send a messenger and protect him. The devil is trying to get Jesus to doubt that God will actually protect him in that fashion. We have these same kind of questions. Would a loving God allow you to get hurt? Or to stub your toe? Are you really his son? How can a loving God, insert whatever answer you have there, how can God love me but also allow me to blank? The truth is, Jesus models here that there's much to learn in the wilderness. And in those moments that the Holy Spirit brings us in, uh, he will also bring us through if we live rightly. The temptation is to get Jesus to doubt God has really got his best intentions at heart. Now, at this time, the memory of people, there were a lot of false prophets. In fact, in Acts, we we find one who claims to be a Messiah. Josephus and some of the other historians remember lots. And there were lots of false messiahs at the time that Jesus came into his life and ministry. In fact, one guy had claimed just a few years before Jesus that he could fly. And do you know how they proved he wasn't a Messiah? They dared him to fly. And when he couldn't do it... It didn't end so well for him. What we see here is the tempter, the devil, merely trying to prove, get Jesus to prove that he is the Messiah in the way that the people had done it. But the thing is, the tempter has heard God's affirmation over his life. He knows he is the Son of God. And so if he gets Jesus to prove himself in this fashion, he proves to be the stronger force, the manipulator, the person who's able to get God's son to do his wishes and to step outside of God's will. Generations before, when the Israelites were on the journey through the wilderness, they began to doubt that God was really protecting them. They doubted that God had their best intentions in heart, and they doubted that God would protect them moving forward. It was there in Massa in the story that the Israelites began to fight about God's lack of protection for them. They went on to test God by asking him to prove his faithfulness once again. They needed to show his affirmation of them, his care and his protection. This was so upsetting to God, uh, even though he showed his compassion for them, that later on when they're finally preparing to enter the promised land, God gives Moses the responsibility to say this. As you enter the new land, do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did in Massah. That idea 
is exactly what Jesus is referring to here. He's overcoming the temptation of the wilderness where God's people had not seen before. Sometimes we do the same thing. We've seen God show up in our life years ago, and we hold on to that. But sometimes we say, God, we really need you to show up and do it now. If we're not careful, we're constantly asking for these quick hits of affirmation. God, do you still love me? Are you still protecting me? And if we're not careful, we sound like the Pharisees when they say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. If you really are who you say you are, prove to me that you have my interest at heart. Now, when the Israelites failed to trust God in the wilderness, Jesus is now, in this passage, being tempted to do the same. In my line of work, we deal a lot with mental health. And there is an increasing amount of professionals that think the way to help somebody overcome trauma or a tragic situation, a place that they keep reeling in their life, is to uh, believe something different about themselves. And so as they come out of a session, they often encourage you to develop I am statements about yourself. Statements that anchor us. And I think that there is importance to affirmations like this. But if we're not careful, these kind of affirmation statements lead to narcissism, delusion, and the belief that we can only protect ourselves. I think what they're trying to do is fill a spiritual void where only the identity of Christ in you can fill. And they're trying to do so through the power of affirmation. Michael Breen remarks that our identity has to come from outside of us. Oops, apologies. Our identity has to come from outside ourselves. For Jesus, the affirmation came from God the Father after his baptism. Right? Is the test in the wilderness is one that says, is the affirmation enough or do I need affirmed in another way? And the truth is that you and I, when we begin to doubt things about ourselves, it's easy for us to look at the praise and the acceptance of others. And when we do that, we never fully live confidently into who God's created us to be. Again, Michael Breen says, it's easy to seek the approval of others in a lot of ways and let them see how we dictate how we see ourselves. And he says, these are quick hits of affirmation. Now, you might say, well, I don't know if I do that. But listen to what Mike Breen says. He says, we do this when we ask someone what they think of us or something that we've done when we already know the response. Or when we put ourselves in someone uh, in, for, before somebody for the sole reason of saying we did a good job or think that we're someone special. And if we're not careful, he says, these things will creep up in our lives everywhere. There are three things that I briefly and quickly want to work through as we close our time out. And this is this. One, I think this story of Jesus in the desert struggling through his identity, realizing that uh, he must hold on. The Father's affirmation must be enough for him, that the affirmation of others will never be as fulfilling. We see that we must take inventory of our need for affirmations of others. We must take inventory of our need for the affirmations of others. This week I was following Sally Fields on Twitter and she posted this. It took me a long time not to judge myself through someone else's eyes. That's an important line. This is the journey though that we must be on as followers of Jesus. Right? If 
Satan gets Jesus to prove himself. He's more worried about how he appears in someone else's eyes than his father's. We must take inventory of our need for the affirmation of others. Like Jesus, we need to make sure that the affirmation we have from God is enough so that we can survive those tough wilderness moments we are in. Two, we must live by the infilling of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that makes all the difference on how the scriptures are read, what gave him power to overcome, authority to overcome. Years ago, Charles Stanley said this, the Holy Spirit living within us and speaking to us ought to be the natural, normal lifestyle of believers. And thirdly, what I think we see in this passage is this. We must know the affirmation of the Father. The scriptures are full of hints of our new identity in God when we walk through the Spirit of God. Or other ways, uh, we know that the affirmation of the Father is enough when we hear it through what God uses to get our attention. Signs, wonders, prophetic dreams, prophetic words and visions to reveal his plan to us, his thoughts of us. Lastly, it's also through the healthy affirmation of others, those who are walking with the Spirit, uh, that we can get hints of who God's created us to be. And it's essential that those things become a mission statement for us, an anchor for us, a plumb line so that we're in the desert moments. We can take inventory against that and say, no, I know who I am. We can live by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will live me, uh, empower me in this way because we know who the Father's informed us. Now, as we close out in worship, I'm going to leave you with just three things that the Father does say about us. Four things. One, we are uniquely made in the image of God. That comes out of Genesis. That's an affirmation of the Father. God created mankind in his own image. Two, we, like Jesus, are called a child of God, right? John writes, yet all who receive him, all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become Children of God. Later on, he writes, see what a great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. Our third identity piece that we must hold on to is that we, despite our feelings of feeling like a misfit, are in fact accepted. Paul, telling his church, writes this, accept one another, accept one another just as you have been accepted by Christ. And lastly, we, despite our struggles with questions, those lonely moments that we feel are seen and heard. Peter writes, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. John also writes, we know that he hears us. As we close out in song, I encourage you this week to find times to inventory your appetite, your need for affirmations and others, but also to ask God to speak over you through his spirit. Who is it that you say, I am?